everyone. This is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Dale Abel from the University of Iowa, who recently joined us for the 10th webinar in the Science of Aging series, a joint webinar series brought to you by Inside Scientific and the American Physiological Society. Dale's presentation took us on a deep dive into the mechanisms underlying heart failure in aging and diabetes. Let's dive in. First question here for you is for patients with heart failure, is it recommended to follow a ketogenic diet? Yeah, so that's a good question. So that is not currently a recommendation. Having said that, there are a number of um, trials of increasing ketone availability to the heart in heart failure. One of the challenges, of course, with the ketogenic diet is that it's a high fat diet that's either restricted in protein or or carbohydrates. I don't think we, we fully understand enough as to the potential negative consequences of that sort of dietary composition. Groups are also looking at just ways of supplementing ketones. You know, ketones are not very palatable, so that's that does you know create a little bit of a challenge. Although there are, there are companies now that are actually making ketone preparations that will reliably increase ketone levels. So 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 there are trials ongoing now in the heart failure population to determine if in fact this dietary or pharmacological approaches to increase ketones will ultimately be beneficial. Certainly, you know, the data from large animal studies are encouraging. And so I think we will have some more clarity about that in the next few months to years. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. The next question here, and a couple people have asked about the mitochondrial function stuff, so I'll kind of group a couple of them together, hopefully. This question is, has anyone looked at the mitochondrial function from the failing hearts, quote unquote failing hearts, in the knockout mice versus the not the non or wild type mice, and specifically with isolated con- mitochondria from cardiac muscle? Yeah, so I, I, I think the questioner is asking about the, the pyruvate carrier knockouts. And so the answer is yes. If you look in the in our Nature Metabolism publication, we actually did a mitochondrial respirometry in these hearts and very importantly, and also looked at ultrastructure, et cetera. And I think the important point here is that in those mutant animals, the only defect that we could discern was an impairment in oxygen consumption when pyruvate was the mitochondrial substrate. If we use other substrates like succinate or palmitol, carnitine, for example, we saw no respiratory phenotype. And when we looked ultrastructurally on these mitochondria, we saw no ultrastructural defects. So essentially, the ventricular remodeling and heart failure that we are seeing in this particular model is not really a function of you know, an intrinsic defect in the mitochondria per se. Um, but really, we believe just a change in the traffic patterns of glucose-derived carbons to essentially flood the glycolytic pathway with carbons that then had to go off into these um, side branch pathways. So to really kind of answer, answer the question, do you think that the mitochondria are intrinsically healthy? Another thing that you see when you read our paper is that, in fact, early on in these animals, there was an, an adaptation of these, of these animals where, at least in the short term, there were MPC an MPC-independent pathway of pyruvate entry that lasted for a while but wasn't enough to sustain normal cardiac structure and function as these animals aged. Fantastic. This next question here 
is, well, first it's a thank you. Thank you, Dr. Abel. <laughs> then the actual question is, high-fat diets also promote cardiac hypertrophy, but you showed that a ketogenic diet improves the cardiac phenotype. Is the high-fat diet somehow reducing the glucose flux, but ketogenic diet isn't, or is it a different mechanism? Yeah, so again, a great question, and I think there are multiple levels of complexity here. So when you put animals on a high-fat diet, they become insulin-resistant and hyperinsulinemic. They become a little bit volume overloaded because insulin actually will increase sodium reuptake from the kidney. They become a little hypertensive as well. So all of these, so the hypertension, the volume overload can also drive cardiac hypertrophy. And then, of course, we have shown in other studies that hyperinsulinemia can also promote prohypertrophic signaling pathways within the heart. So, so I think there are, there are multiple mechanisms by which the high-fat diet feeding can drive cardiac hypertrophy in an otherwise normal host. And um, I think that, you know, what we kind of did in the pyruvate knockout studies was essentially we used whether it was high-fat diet feeding or a ketogenic diet. And I think it's important to emphasize that what I showed you in the talk here for the ketogenic diet, we all saw the same effect by putting animals on a non-ketogenic high-fat diet. So it's, there's not was anything necessarily magical about the ketones per se. It was just having a manipulation that just kind of suppressed glycolysis sufficiently to kind of, you know, as it were, drain the swamp of all these carbons that were kind of, you know, filtering off from glycolysis. And we were able to show that that correlated with reverse remodeling. So I hope that that has addressed that question. Yeah, I think it did. Thank you for that. I love the drain the swamp analogy there too. Okay, so this next question here is, can you say a word about glucose 6-phosphate and its role at the crossroads of glucose metabolism? Yeah, so again, not, not fully sure, you know, exactly what the, the, the question is, but I'm just, just going to just quickly just, if I can, just going to scroll back to that glycolysis slide here, that might, that might help to um, address this. I'm just scrolling back to the cartoon of glycolysis here. I think it's, um, here we go. Okay. So that's slide, slide 30. Can, can we go back to slide 30? Um, I think. Oh, I think I didn't write. Yeah, that's that 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 one. Yeah. So so I think the question is um glucose 6-phosphate. So you can see where glucose 6-phosphate sits within the glycolytic pathway. So an important uh, so G6P is an important precursor for example into the phosphate in, into the pentose phosphate pathway as you can see here in this in this figure. And clearly one of the things that we have seen in the MPC mutants was also in human heart failure. For example, one of the most highly induced metabolites that we saw in the, the MPC mutant animals was this metabolite that you see if you go from glucose 6-phosphate to 6-phosphate to ribose 5-phosphate is cedoheptylose 7-phosphate. And that was quite induced. That was also true in humans with heart failure as well. The other point I think about G6P is that when G6P is converted to 6-phosphate through G6P dehydrogenase, there is consumption of um, NADPH. So, so this pathway also plays a very important role in redox regulation within the heart. And so I think that that's another important aspect that we didn't direct the study, but I think certainly potentially could be implicated again in this pathway. 
And finally, the pentose phosphate pathway, again, which is downstream of um, glucose 6-phosphate, ultimately can also lead to the generation of um, nucleotide precursors, which are, as again, you know, important building blocks for potentially important in, in, cellular, in cellular proliferation and potentially also in cardiomyocyte hypertrophy. So I do think that it is an important nexus involved in in pathological hypertrophy. There's very nice work from Brad Hill, the University of Louisville, was also shown that it's an important switch as well in comparing the metabolic adaptations to pathological hypertrophy, which is what I, I really mainly talked about, versus physiologic hypertrophy, which occurs, for example, in the context of exercise. Fantastic. Okay. This question is, can you please address or touch on the role of SGLT1? I believe that is the sodium glucose co-transporter one, um, specifically in the context of diabetes and heart failure. Very good questions. This is not my work, but work by others that have suggested that in the context of, so let's just back up. So if one looks at glucose entry into the heart, there's uh, the glucose transporters, group one, group four, but there's also these SJT1, which essentially are sodium glucose co-transporters. And there's evidence in diabetes that there's induction of SJT1 in the heart. And that basically is correlated with activation of certain growth promoting signaling pathways downstream of MAP kinase, but also pathways that might be involved in calcium homeostasis within, within the myocyte. So I do believe that there is emerging evidence that induction of SGLT1 potentially could also be playing a role in the cardiac dysfunction in the context of uh, diabetes. Okay, fantastic. We've got a couple questions here that are addressing the same thing. So I'm going to try and combine them for you. Essentially, people are wondering if these same dysfunctions in glucose metabolisms in cardiac muscle with the same disorders can be observed in skeletal muscle as well, especially with things like sarcopenia. And do you know if there's any mechanism that can underlie both cardiac muscle and skeletal muscle? Great question. So I don't think they're necessarily parallel. So Eric Taylor here in the University of Iowa has knocked out um, MPC-1 in skeletal muscle. And it's a complex phenotype. And this was actually published in eLife a year and a half ago. That essentially what then happens when you block that pathway is that there is actually increased efflux of carbons to the liver, kind of like a reverse uh, of the core cycle, as it were, which then has a systemic metabolic effect. So, so I think that skeletal muscle is a little bit different in that because there's so much of it and that it's really a source of carbons that actually get exported to the liver, that the phenotype of the skeletal muscle MPC1 mouse really is more one of, you know, redirection of, of, of carbons to, to the liver as opposed to, you know, primarily um, driving sarcopenia. That said, I don't think Eric really focused a lot on muscle mass in that particular study. So, and I don't know if people have really significantly or systematically looked in any of the many models of sarcopenia to then ask the question, once you develop sarcopenia, do you actually get, is there evidence of mismatch between glycosis and glucose oxidation? So certainly I think it's, it's ripe for um, future study. Great. All right. Another question here. Are you aware of any stable isotope tracing experiments in these models specifically? Do you know how the levels of TCA cycle intermediates play out? Yeah, I refer you to our Nature Metabolism paper. We did do stable isotope tracing studies in isolated perfused hearts and were a little initially confused because I said earlier, it looked like 
there was a MPC independent pathway that was kind of keeping the TCA at least initially filled up in the compensated stage. But however, as, as these animals aged, there was clearly a reduction in the TCA intermediate, at least in the heart. Eric Taylor has done elegant tracing studies I'm looking at in, in animals with NPC deficiency in skeletal muscle and liver. And I w- would certainly encourage you to go look at those papers. The liver paper was in some metabolism. And as I said, the skeletal muscle paper was in eLife. Amazing. Great. And we can always post the links to those papers in the resources section for the on-demand viewers as well. Another question here, what drives protein degradation in the reverse remodeling? Oh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question because, you, you know, when you, when you, I mean, I think you're, you're really asking, you're assuming that, the, you know, the, the, the reverse remodeling is associated with protein degradation. But remember, it's probably also associated with um, some changes within the, in, within the matrix as well. But we don't really know what, what, what drives that, that. And we haven't yet done kind of flux studies to kind of see what's going on. What I can, what I can tell you though is that in a very nice study that was published in science by Zolta Rani's group at the University of Pennsylvania, what is very clear is that there's tremendous amino acid flux in and out of the heart. So this was a study he did in humans where he categorized both the right and the, the, the left side and essentially looked at metabolite flux across the heart. And I think one of the unexpected but important findings of that work was that there's tremendous protein turnover and amino acid turnover in the hearts, even under of relatively healthy people. So, but from, from the, if the question is mechanistically what drives that, I don't know. And, you know, I think that really opens up and again, many interesting questions. I mean, we don't think in our hands was autophagy because we looked at that, but, you know, ultimately, you know, what's driving the breakdown and recycling of these, of these amino acids, I think is still um, a relatively open question. hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.